Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we're investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 28 through 35. We start with Quarrel walking up the dock away from Bond, and ends with Bond, Felix, and Quarrel dining at Pussfeller's Club, and Quarrel saying that he's visited Crab Key with Commander Strangways. In between, we get Bond and Quarrel meeting at Pussfeller's Bar, a fight in back, interrupted by CIA officer Felix Leiter, and later dinner at the same place, and another encounter with the girl photographer from the airport. And today we're joined by film programmer, former vinyl archivist at the Mars Sound Archive, freelance film writer, Casey Dewey. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. We always ask everybody, do you remember your first James Bond movie? Uh, I absolutely do. The first James Bond flick I saw was uh, Octopussy. I uh, caught it on HBO when I was a kid. I want to say I was probably, I was young. I was maybe six, maybe seven years old. Uh, I seem to remember Octopussy playing on HBO quite a bit. And I kind of fell in love. And when I found out that there was an actual uh, film series, that there was a lot more uh, James Bond films out there, I uh, you know, begged my mom to go to the video store and I wanted to... Uh, watch as much Bond as I possibly could. And then uh, when um, the next film came out after Octopussy, uh, View to a Kill, I was ecstatic. I mean, I, I was an MTV kid. Uh, my favorite band was Duran Duran. And uh, them doing the theme song uh, was just, uh, you know, all I could ever ask for. It was like my favorite movie character and my favorite band uh, teaming up. It was great. The first album I ever bought with like my allowance was the View to a Kill soundtrack, uh, solely for that Duran Duran song, but then I fell in love with the John Barry stuff, and that kind of started my lifelong uh, passion for, for film scores, film soundtracks. You had a, a, a radio show, right, in Tucson uh, that was dedicated to film soundtracks, I right? did, yeah. It was called Deep Red Radio, Deep Red... Um, which is uh, named after the Dario Argento film, uh, the Goblin soundtrack. And I played everything from, you know, horror movie music to uh, Bond themes to, uh, you know, uh, funk, uh, black exploitation funk stuff. Um, it was kind of all over the map. It was, it was a great show. So did you continue then collecting John Barry soundtracks after, after they set the hook with the uh... Um, not until later in life when I was probably when I was a teenager and I started buying vinyl a lot um, I would go I, you would just seem to find uh, copies of Goldfinger or Thunderball at any thrift store you went to and uh, anytime I saw a John Barry Bond uh, soundtrack I would just scoop it up and I still have a lot of that uh, to this day okay so now I think we have to ask the question which one's the best what's the best uh, 
John John Barry Bond score? Well, I tend to um, I tend to flock to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Correct. Um, also, uh, it's also a personal, a really personal note to that too. Um, my wife and I at our wedding, our first wedding song that we danced together was uh, Louis Armstrong's "We Have All the Time in the World for Love." And so. your, your wedding ended much better than James Bond. <laughs> right, right. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm with you. That's my uh, that's my favorite. I like the Moog. I like. I even have uh, my Christmas. Uh, song playlist has do you know where Christmas how Christmas trees are grown and I sure. love that whole score. Yeah, that's a tough song for me. I know it is. I understand. I but at Christmas time, it works. Yeah, only that's true. only between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah, fair enough. I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> that that that's, that makes sense. <laughs> well, uh, how long had it been since you'd seen Doctor No? It's been quite some time. Um, it's probably been at least twenty years. Um, Dr. No is not one of my favorite Bond films. Um, and that's not to say it's, it's, uh, it's not a, a bad film by any means. It's just, it's the first one. And it just, I don't think it had found its footing yet. It's not exactly, um, you know, I think quintessential Bond was cemented in the third film, Goldfinger. It's just, it's not one that I, I tend to go back to when I want to watch a Bond film. You know, the underscoring is so weird in it. It, it's it's that there's that it sounds like Beethoven's fifth, you know, this da 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 that Monty Norman does. And it just it's one of the most weirdly dissonant sounding underscoring, I think. Right. Yeah. But it's got good Jamaican stuff, which is part of why you're here. Definitely. We'll talk a little bit about that. And, and as we move through the minutes, I want to talk about some of the stuff that we hear on the soundtrack um, and some of the stuff that. Fleming refers to in the book as well. So he's, he's name checking some artists and songs throughout the book as well. So we want to talk about the impact of Jamaican music. Um, as a sidebar, I've been listening to the soundtrack to the harder they come. And I realize I haven't seen that movie in about 20 years. And I think there's a good criterion transfer of it out there somewhere. I'm really dying to kind of look at that movie again. There is. And Harder They Come is a, a film that I watch uh, on a pretty frequent basis. I watch it every couple of years. And um, another soundtrack I've had on vinyl for a really long time that I listen to. Um, if, if I'm not having a good day, that is a record that, uh, that I will put on that will usually uh, reverse that. And we'll get into a little bit more of, uh, of that soundtrack and kind of its, uh, its inspiration from James Bond. We'll get into that a little bit later, I'm sure. Excellent. Very well, good. I do have one musical question to start. It's a production-based one here because we get – so we get Coral walking away from Bond, uh, conspicuously looking over his shoulder as he walks down the dock. Bond kind of follows him, and we pass by a guy cleaning his boat. Now, uh, this is to ask you guys the question – we get underneath the mango tree, uh, acapella version reprise here a little bit in the score. Is is it? This is diegetic, right? We're supposed to feel this is a diegetic uh, version of the song, probably sung by that guy cleaning the boat, right? Is that the idea? It's about where the cue is. So we all agree to that, right? Just making sure yeah. we're on the same page. Right. That's my takeaway. Is that yours, Mitch? Do you read that as being that guy, or is there? You know, I wasn't sure whether it was the guy or whether it's like a radio playing in the background at the 
at the club. At the I club. mean, it definitely has a tone to it that sounds like it's diegetic. It's just a question of whether it's somebody singing it or whether it's a radio or something. The one issue I have with it is there's no attempt to mix it <laughs> in any way to give you any idea where it's coming from. It's The volume uh, maintains its consistency no matter where Bond is. So I agree. It could have been the thought went through my head, too, that it could be the radio in the club or a guy in the club maybe rehearsing for the night's show. Well, that but, makes sense because it does come back as a as a as a somewhat as an instrumental uh, towards the end of the club scene. Uh, mm-hmm. The band strikes up. Um, you don't hear the vocals coming yet, but they definitely play the intro. So this right. is uh, the second time it's played, and then uh, it's played three times in the movie uh, with the Honey Rider version coming later during her uh, her uh, introduction. And yes. then in the end titles, too, right? It comes up at the very end when they're in the boat together. Right. Right. So four times. And why was there not an attempt to make it sound more distant at first? Or Like nowadays, with every, all the stereo, the Dolby, everything that we get now, there's it's going to be fine-tuned to lead us geographically to the place, to the source of the sound, or take us away from that. Is this just um, an archaic moment in the history of film sound editing? That it's just the same volume. Yeah. It's an archaic, low-budget moment. I think they probably had limited time and limited resources to throw this thing together. And so it's probably lacking in finesse for a variety of reasons. Sure. But you had another question about uh, the geography of the scene, right? I did, and I went back and looked at the previous minutes to try and get a better sense of how it's laid out. And it's pretty interesting. It's sort of like a horseshoe in that... Quarrel is walking along, I guess, what we call the bottom of the horseshoe, and then he curves back up on one side, and then we have the complementary shot of Bond walking parallel to him along the that rock wall. And so that restaurant is actually out on a kind of dock. It's out on the water. And so at first I was a little confused, but then when I went back and looked at it again, I realized how it's sort of laid out. So it was a practical location, and apparently the guy that plays Pussfeller... Uh, whose last name was was Pendergrast, owned the club. And Terrence Young said he was a sort of sinister operator and and apparently was uh, in, in league with some unscrupulous folks as they were making the movie. And I guess his niece was the costume designer uh, whom they knew, and she built all of the costumes, um, the Chinese dresses and the Chinese stylings, which Terrence Young said because he grew up in China. He had an affinity for that kind of those kind of clothes, and so he was insistent that the girl in the scene, for example, be wearing a sort of Chinese cut dress. But um, yeah, so it's like it's a real place, and they're working within a practical location both day and night. And I guess the back room is also connected to it as well, so that's all practical. This moment where they're walking away from each other only to meet again shortly thereafter in Pussfeller's Club. Do we read this as Quarrel? Is Quarrel actually trying to get away from Bond? Or do he, he realizes he's going to basically lead him into the club. I mean, if, if Bond wants to talk to him, he's not just going to disappear. And he knows this, right? I mean, I think we kind of know that from what happens later. I, I guess this, I was actually going to get to this point later, but what's the point of... This the entire scene down by the bay, down by the boat. Was that necessary at all, or was the subterfuge necessary at all? At least. Well, that's the point. When he gets to the club, he says, "I couldn't have talked to you out by the boats. So I didn't want anybody listening in." Right. And what what we don't know yet is that he's partnered 
with Felix, that he's, you know, he's an, he's an agent to the CIA officer, which is interesting because in the book, that's not the case at all. He's James Bond's guy, right? Uh, both in this and in Live and Let Die. But in a way, he's, he's Felix's guy because he was in the car with Felix when they were going to tail him from the airport. And then the, he, Felix even says, when you got into the car with the opposition, I wasn't sure about you, which is the chauffeur with the cyanide cigarette. Right. Well, I guess my question is, though, sure, he could, they couldn't be seen talking there, but they did talk there. And while they are talking, he could have said something to the effect of, hey, uh, there's a nice club up there if you're looking for a drink, or any number of things to say, let's go talk up there, instead of the whole subterfuge of, I think you got the wrong guy. That, to me, that's all just, again, these, this is another one of those moments where I've never once thought about this. It's never bothered me before. <laughs> but now that I'm looking at it this closely, I'm saying, wait, why did they even use any amount of uh, time in the film for this? Why not have him just say you'll meet him upstairs or wherever at the club and go from there? Don't we get more suspense for it? I mean, it's a it's a trick. It's a, it's ginned up. But we do get this sense of tension between the two men. The friends are foe. Right. And then he walks away. And so James Bond has to intercept him, which I assume is what he's doing by walking along that wall and what we don't really see is Coral take the left hand turn onto the dock we get another shot of him on the dock which makes the geography a little confusing but Bond is basically shadowing him so then do you think the suspense is more valuable than the more I think that wouldn't wouldn't you think that the impact of the uh, momentary twist of him pulling the knife and getting the jump on Bond like if we think they're friends or they're friendly would maybe gotten more value out of that. I'm just I'm just wanting to break this whole thing down because to me it kind of it doesn't sit perfectly well. So I'm just kind of wondering: is there a moment that could have been redone here, where something would have been? I I just don't know if I get that much suspense out of it. Actually, it's kind of maybe because it's disingenuous <laughs> a little bit. It's just a little well, yeah, bit. Yeah, and trick. isn't it a setup for Felix too? Because yeah. we're going to get the whole pulls the knife on Bond and then they're going to have to explain that it's because they weren't sure whose side he was on, which right. is a little silly if you think about it. But, yeah, it's all a little yeah, arguably silly. It is. I, I did have some questions about Pussfeller. Let's, let's talk about Pussfeller for just a second. Because he's a little different, a little different between the book and the, and the movie, right? There's not a whole lot to work with in either sense. But when you're watching the movie and they keep calling him Pussfeller... Not, I don't know what to think about that name. I'm like, I, what? What is this name? Is it the Ian Fleming obsession with that word? I don't know. Um, but when you read the book, you you realize that um, it's not puss, P-U-S-S. It's puss, like octopus, because he wrestled an octopus. He's famous for having wrestled this octopus, right? Um, yeah, which which foreshadows the giant octopus later that james bond fights in the book which right. is of course ridiculous but anyway we're just going to get this giant octopus theme sure. out out and going in the book i guess i and guess for the, for the record um dr no is one of the novels that i have not read yeah no no pressure to read dr no by any means <laughs> i'm only i'm only going through it for the first time for this because it's mm. It's kind of fascinating to do the comparisons. But in this case, I'm wondering why the change, because they they even go to their way to change the animal he wrestled for some reason. I don't know why. Because if if when they get into the confrontation there in the back room where Pussfeller has Bond, you know, locked down, 
why change it to alligator if you say hey you wrestled an octopus then now we know why his name is what it is at least we have a hint it's a strange change crockfeller yeah crockfeller <laughs> yeah i like crockfellers kind of rolls off the tongue but to me it's a strange change because that one moment we don't need it to pay off if they if they cut it because or, or cut that or change the idea because they cut any octopus fight later in the in the movie then well i don't care to say it say it wrestled an octopus i don't know it's funny they even changed the spelling like in yeah, everything that weird. you see i don't know i just think it's an odd kind of confusing thing to change while a lot of the changes from the movie to the book or from the book to the movie are pretty valuable i think this one's kind of baffling i don't know i think you're right yeah yeah i think you're probably right well, did you notice uh, since we're are we in the back room now? Are we at the yeah? Was are there, we at the the red stripe beer moment? Yeah, is there is there anything to talk about at the bar? Not are really. they drinking Victoria beer at the bar? I think at, they're drinking. I think they're drinking red stripe at the bar. Well, the bottles are they're the there's a red, the red stripe on the bottles, but the bottles aren't the shape or, or the size um, that you think about when you think about a red. Red stripes are, are shorter, you know, squatter bottles. Which red stripe uh, bottles were, that was a common bottle shape at the time. Like if you got a Budweiser in the 60s, that's what it looked like, I think, all the way up into the 70s even, before they started the longer, leaner mm-hmm. bottle. But I thought... It was just, I didn't actually look into it or couldn't find anything in particular about it. And it's kind of hard to see in the clip. But I was thinking Victoria beer. You know, the Victoria beer is either a British import or mm-hmm. a Jamaican beer as well. I can't remember. So I was kind of thinking, well, do they have double, do we have double product placements, beer product placements here? It's like having Pepsi in one scene and Coke in the other. <laughs> well, we'll have to uh, do some more investigating. Maybe, maybe we'll do some frame grabs and put them on the Facebook site and continue the debate there. Well, we have a lot of British listeners, so uh, I assume, well, we have in the past, I assume we yeah, hope for this We as hope well. to have more British <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yes. So um, the Red Stripe beer, though, is definitely prominently displayed there, which is great local color, I think. Yeah. But the fight, we have got to get to the fight. Did, did you notice, Casey, did you notice the stuntman in the fight? Uh, no, I did not. Is it a Connery stuntman? It's a white guy with a full head of hair <laughs> doubling for a black guy who's bald. Oh, in, okay. In, a, in just a few frames, but if you look for it, it's, it's pretty funny. I'd never noticed it. John noticed it and told me about it. It just caught my eye. It's, it is quick enough. I could see why they thought they could get away with it. Because you never really see the guy's face. You just kind of see his neck and ear and hair. But it's really obviously a white man. And you go, what in the world? They couldn't, they're in Jamaica and they couldn't find for one guy. <laughs> I'm, sure there's a, I'm sure there's one guy that could do that stunt on, on the island of Jamaica. But I, I guess It may well have been Bob Simmons, you know. It yeah. may have been Bob Simmons doubling. It would make sense. He was around. He's the same height. I mean, it looks it looks very well like it could be. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's almost like you know, Bond's just been told that he's dealing with this great wrestler of of beasts, <laughs> and Bond used some gadget to convert him to a, a different man for just long enough to throw him into some boxes. I don't know. It's very <laughs> it's very strange moment. He's great with alligators. He's not so good with with guys. With clearly. British agents, yeah. British agents are can all, all do it. And we have that reprise of the moment with Bond 
uh, and the chauffeur, where we see the chauffeur realize there's a gun at his back, and then Young does it again. This time it's Bond realizing that there's a gun at his back. Another Walther, which I guess is the universal spy gun mm-hmm. uh, and the shared weapon of the CIA, apparently, and the and and the Her Majesty's Secret Service. And we see Jack Lord playing Felix Leiter. So we finally figure out who this guy is who's been following Bond. And how about those sunglasses? Oh, those are so styling. <laughs> <laughs> are we saying this facetiously or seriously? It's, a, it's a, like to go, we go from a lady's gun with the armorer scene to some ladies' glasses on Jack Lord. Yeah. They're I mean, they're, they're not exactly cat-eyed. But they're they're almost there. Yeah, I'm just surprised he's not wearing Wayfarers, you know, Ray Bans like JFK, right? Because right. his hair is like JFK, and it seemed like that would be like the logical, you know, iconography to make it super clear this guy's an American because I've never seen those kind of glasses in America. No, yeah, it, it looks know. like he found them like at the airport, <laughs> or and... he's borrowing his wife's. Who knows? Right, <laughs> just he picked up the closest pair. Because, right. yeah, they don't, I mean, it's not even as much of, of, of a woman's or man's sunglasses as it is. They're just too big for his face, man. Like, come on, you look, you got to make sure they contour correctly with the mm-hmm. uh, the temples there. Um, exactly. It, it just looks kind of silly. Had he had a close-up, it would have been, it would have been maybe a laugh moment. It could have killed the whole moment. But luckily, it's not that, it's not that bad. He's cool enough to overcome the sunglasses, Jack Lord. It so, does say something about Jack Lord's level of coolness, for sure, that he can actually pull those things off uh, for a few seconds. He definitely gets rid of them pretty quickly. Yeah. Right. He's 10 years older than Connery in this. He's 41 and Connery's 32, and he looks great. He yeah. looks about the same age. How long was uh, Hawaii Five-0 on the air for? I don't know, but it's got to have been... At, it, it, did it go past seven years? Because that was usually the magic oh, yeah. number for syndication. So it did, right? I would guess it was like, it went way up into the 70s. And I even want to say one time I looked at it and they were still in production. For, like at the final, boy, I'm just pulling this out. I might be totally wrong about this. But I thought they were still in production at the end when Magnum PI was in production at the beginning. Wow. Because I feel like it was a long, long run show. After this, he did Stony Burke which was his first kind of hit TV show, I think. And then from that, he went on to Hawaii Five-0. Terrence Young maintains that this, this role was uh, too good for him in the sense that it, it, it uh, was bad for the Bond franchise and good for Jack Lord because it catapulted him into the next level and he wasn't coming back to do any more James Bond films, especially if he was going to have to be a second fiddle to Bond. He felt like he should be as important a character as James Bond. There's definitely a, 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 not too far of a, not too long of a stretch from Felix Leiter to uh, Dano. They're uh, kind of a, a similar, or he plays them in a, in a similar fashion. I don't know if that's a testament to his, his acting skills, whether that's good or bad, but. McGarrett, right? Who says Bookham Dano all the time. That's right? right. Right, right, right. This is another trick that they're stealing from Casino Royale because they don't have the rights to it. And so for the first Bond adventure, we have Felix show up. Felix Leiter is not in the book. In fact, by this time, were he to show up in the book, he would have a, a hook arm and a mangled leg because <laughs> he meets a pretty unpleasant shark situation in Live and Let Die. And then when he does show up again, he's he's got these... These exotic 
you know, hook arm that can. Cha- I, I don't know if it has if it's gadgety or not, but it's but he's very deft with it. He's very good with it, and he's um, he's supposed to be a Texan. He's got these horrible Texas aphorisms in all of his representations in the books. So uh, Jack Lord is definitely not playing him like the book at all. You'll have to remind me. Uh, Felix Leiter is in License to Kill, and I believe that's where he does lose his arm, right? Yeah, they get they take that from Live and Let Die, and they transport that little bit of action into License to Kill. Yeah, and that's played by a guy that played Felix twice. Yeah, in right. Live and Let Die, right? It's the same actor? Yeah, David Hedison. Gotcha. Who's managed to get much older than his buddy Bond. <laughs> Bond keeps getting younger and Felix keeps getting older. But Felix makes all sorts of different appearances by different actors throughout the series. And Yeah, it brings up that question of, is James Bond a man named James Bond or a agent with the um, title of James Bond or oh, same go no. for Felix Leiter. <laughs> it's always fun to think about. Just wanted to throw that one out there for people to think about for a moment if they want. You know, another thing about that fight scene, according to the band commentary, and I need to just ask the question to the Facebook listeners if everybody has heard this or has had access to that because it was the commentary tracks that were recorded for the Criterion versions of the laser discs of Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. And then when the film's rights went back to whoever got them next to to distribute the films on home video, they decided that Terrence Young and others were too frank in their comments about the making of these films, and they those commentaries went away. Now, all, obviously, too, they were owned by Criterion. They weren't going to be owned by Eon, so maybe that was another reason for Eon to go ahead and record new commentaries. Anyway... Terrence Young apparently was not shooting enough coverage to make the editor happy. And he said he wasn't asking for new angles, but he was just asking for more heads and tails. Like, wait a little longer to call action and wait a little longer to call cut, because he said he was calling cut before the action was almost finished. And Terrence Young defends this by saying, I don't shoot coverage. I know exactly what I need. But if you look at the editing in that fight, it's really jumpy and Peter Hunt did say that he thought he made it makes it more comic book and it doesn't have to match perfectly and it keeps the energy up. Uh, but yeah, there were, he said he bashed this together and did it partially because he didn't have the coverage he needed for the fight, which mm. I think is interesting. You know, we talked about Hunt earlier and how innovative his editing style was as far as, as um, giving action a visceral quality, not pulling punches literally or figuratively in the action. And here you're saying it kind of comes off that way, maybe a little bit out of necessity. But then it also kind of becomes his style, right? I mean, even when he gets down to directing um, action in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it's pretty, um, it's pretty visceral. It's pretty quick cuts, and and one could even say, I wouldn't say sloppy by any means, but it's choppier. Then you're right, there's jump cuts where the match, the action doesn't match, which right. is pretty cool, actually. It gives it a certain propulsive energy that nobody was doing up to that point. So it was one of the things that made these films special. The, the rate of cuts uh, as well. Just these right. films were cut faster than the average movie of the time. And Goldfinger, uh, David Bordwell writes about Goldfinger being a film that was way ahead of everybody else in terms of the number of cuts per minute. So it accelerated 
the way that we watch movies. Here's another music check, by the way. So in Dr. No, Casey, uh, Fleming says that Felix Leiter, well, not in Dr. No, but when Felix Leiter first shows up, he describes him as um, like Frank Sinatra, Mm. that his clothes hang off of him like Frank Sinatra. And then he describes James Bond as looking like Hoagie Carmichael. So we have all these singers of that period being represented as our spy models, which is pretty weird. Mm-hmm. And were we talking Gene Kelly sidekick Frank, or are we talking post From Here to Eternity Frank? Yeah. yeah. Skinny kid from Hoboken. The Hoboken kid. Yeah, about. yeah, okay. Yeah. The Bobby yeah, Soxer era. Right. Not the more robust right. um, Vegas era. Yeah. yeah. Bar- barrel-chested era. Right. <laughs> And real quick, and, is it is it just me, or does it feel like that Lighter and Bonds kind of their sizing each other up goes on forever? You know, it seems <laughs> like let's let, let's get the digs in uh, uh, to the Brits, let's get the digs in to the Americans, and it just seems to they're kind of constantly, you know, two sharks uh, circling each other. Yeah, and I don't even think Felix gets to name drop a tailor the way that Bond does. He says he gets his suits in Washington, D.C., but doesn't say the name of the place the way that Bond says, I, I have a Savile Road right. tailor. And You're not going to be so. able to compete with Savile Road. That's <laughs> true. You say Savile Road, and you know exactly what that means. Uh, who's in Washington, D.C.? Come on, nobody. We don't. No offense to any tailors in Washington, D.C., but come on. Brooks Brothers. Right. Brooks, Brothers Brooks Brothers probably Brothers wasn't like even it. in Washington, D.C. You'd probably have to go to New York <laughs> to get Brooks Brothers. Yeah, if he's getting his suits in Washington, D.C., that's probably, that's kind of self-insult, isn't it? Like you're not even going yeah. to New York for your suits. Come on, poorly paid officers. You got it. They have a little shop in Langley where they all get their, you know, yeah. they get their clothes right off the rack. We shouldn't forget the dig that Bond uh, gives Pussfeller too, which is just rude, man. Uh, it's you know, hey, let's brag about Pussfeller. He's he's wrestled at Alligator. Um, Bond throws him over, and then they say, you know. They basically say, let's go to the club and hang out. But then he says, I hope his, he cooks better than he fights, which is like, man, come on. You just, <laughs> you just kicked a guy's ass. Isn't that enough? But he takes it well, Pussfeller. You got to admit, you know, he, he laughs it off. and um, Spits in his food later tonight. We don't know about that part. But yeah. <laughs> right. So I do think, though, that they probably have been day drinking through this whole thing. The way, the way Lighter's caressing that rum bottle, it looks as if he's gotten to know it pretty well. <laughs> he, he really does. I can't tell if it's Lord didn't know what to do in the scene, but he's kind of pulls that rum bottle up and kind of caresses it in a weird way. It's very noticeable to me. Can we catch a brand on that rum bottle? Ooh, there's so many brands of rum. That's a tough one. But, the, but the, we can't see it, right? I don't think so. If you yeah. can, I, I didn't notice it. Yeah, it didn't jump out at me. It's got a little barrel age to it, I could tell. It's got I, some color. I do appreciate the uh, candle, the candle in the bottle on the table. It's one of the, you know, the uh, candle wax melting all over the bottle. It's a nice little touch there. Yeah. Yep. Miss real candles in restaurants sometimes. It's a pretty nice look. Well, here we are with uh, Byron Lee and the Dragon Airs, right? Yep. Yeah, Byron Lee and the Dragonaires with the great uh, Ernest Wranglin on guitar. Uh, Ernest Wranglin uh, played with uh, you know, Prince Buster. He played with the Melodians. He played with the Wailers. He was uh, kind of the, the, the go-to uh, ska, rocksteady, reggae guitar player. And uh, I believe he, he was Monty Norman's kind of his, his, his man in Jamaica. He was, uh, I believe he... Uh, 
did a lot of the uh, the arrangement of all the Jamaican stuff that's on the soundtrack. So where were we in terms of, or where are we in terms of the the Calypso boom and the, the you know, we, Belafonte's recording at this point, right? We're yeah. 1961, 62. Calypso, I mean, it's a really interesting time in Jamaica, 1962. Uh, that's where they declare their, their independence. Um, music and culture is changing. Um, the economy is not doing so great. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's some crime uh, being perpetuated. Being perpetu- Sorry, let me catch myself. Uh, there's some crime being done by some out of work, uh, you know, people who don't have jobs. And they're kind of coalescing around this new scene of music that's called ska, which is, you know, Calypso's very, uh, you know, very percussion-y and it's very easily uh, commodified. It's uh, at that point in time, a lot of Calypso is for the tourists, uh, all these Calypso bands playing at hotels. Ska was kind of a... more of a stripped down uh, sound that was basically singing songs about local dudes doing crimes kind of similar to uh, the emergence of hip-hop tall tales of local uh, notorious figures what do we know about uh, the song that they're singing is this a is this a traditional song is it a morning monty norman song i think jump jump up is the the name of the song i believe it's a it's a monty norman it's a norman composition and uh it's kind of you know it's 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 not exactly ska but it's got elements there and even the uh, you know the the jamaican i don't know when the dance came around but there's a dance that you do to ska music called the skank i don't know exactly when it was named that but the skank is kind of a uh, a flowing jump up and down dance and so i thought it was interesting that it's almost like a like a rudimentary version of uh of uh what would come a little bit later you're seeing it uh, in this film. Did you know that Chris Blackwell is dancing with the, the other people? I did not know that. He's in the, he's so, in the crowd scene? Yeah, if you look for a, a guy in uh, blonde hair with a blue shirt mm-hmm. and sort of light khaki pants, and they, you see him a couple of times, he's very close to camera when the camera's pe- moving back towards the bond table. But that was that's Chris Blackwell, who was the location coordinator who showed the crew all over Jamaica and helped them pick all of the locations because he had his family had been there for four mm-hmm. generations Ian Fleming uh, and Chris Blackwell's mother were uh, an item romantically and uh, apparently Chris Blackwell wanted Terence Young to invest 5,000 pounds in a record venture that he had in mind and he came around to see him with a, one of his associates and Terence Young said they were both high as kites and um, his wife said, no, no, you, you shouldn't get involved with these. So he didn't invest the 5,000 pounds. <laughs> and of course, what did it sell for 400 million island wow. sells for, you know, years yeah. and years later or something. Uh, I guess we should note that Chris Blackwell is the uh, founder of Island Records, uh, who brought both Bob Marley and you too, uh, you know, brought them to the masses. Yeah. So, Casey, you you're going to put together a list of uh, a Spotify list, right, of some some different pieces that are from right. the soundtrack and mm-hmm. inspired by and referenced. Uh, Fleming talks about a, a piece called Kitsch. Um, yeah, Kitsch is uh, is by uh, originally by uh, Lord Kitchener, 
uh, who was kind of a kind of the the godfather of, of calypso music uh, in the 40s and 50s. And there's um, like a lot of folk music. There's uh, a lot of different versions of the song out there. Uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool track. And it was really cool of Fleming to, to put that in there. It's a pretty, it's kind of a, a raw song. And then we've also got Take Her to Jamaica, where the rum comes from. Take I think that's name checked as well. Right. And that is, I think, originally by a guy named Lord, uh, I want to say it's Lord Messam, who was a, uh, what's known as a, a, a mento singer. Mento is kind of like a, kind of a, an acoustic uh, calypso genre. I found this record in a used record store by a guy called uh, Lord Christo, who I'd never heard of, who I guess is another one of lots of lords, I guess, these, <laughs> yeah. these guys. Um, but ex- but a great calypso record. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, yeah, Don't Touch Me Tomato uh, is kind of a, um, you know, it's a, it's a sexual innuendo song, right? And it's similar yeah. to a lot of blues songs that were, uh, recorded uh, in the 30s, uh, you know, think of, uh, you know, Jelly Roll. You, know, you don't have to think too too long about what that, you know, is <laughs> inferring right. to, but Don't Touch don't touch Me Tomato is a very uh, similar type of song. Yeah, I recently heard a, a male rendition of Touch Me Tomato, and I don't think I ever heard a man sing that song before. Hmm. I've heard... Even in documentaries, just women in Jamaica singing that song, mm-hmm. or recordings of women, and I've never, I've always attributed it to the very um, kind of obvious metaphor of the song. <laughs> but I never, yeah. but uh, a man singing it gave it just a little bit of a different uh, feel. Sure. But uh, sure. no pun intended. But uh, yeah, it's that's a classic. Like every time I hear that song, it's stuck. It's it, it's a very catchy little folk song. Absolutely. And uh, for yeah. I had a tape, some tape of. Uh, of a Bob Marley documentary like 25 years ago where you hear that song and, it, and my girlfriend and I used to just kind of sing it around the house and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> just a catchy little song. So th- this is 62. Mm-hmm. I can't, I don't even know when Island Records started and when the stuff really started to kind of explode across the world. Well, before there was Island, there was uh, Trojan Records. And uh, there's a great documentary that just came out. I believe it's available on Canopy. Uh, I think it's called Rude Boy, The Story of Trojan Records. And Trojan was a homegrown uh, label that was formed in Kingston, Jamaica. Uh, at the time, there were these things called sound clashes, where basically it was who has the best stereo system at, in your storefront. And they would put together all this gear and they would record music just to play at these sound clashes. And uh, it's kind of where a lot of Root Boys, as they were known, uh, they would be hired by different people running the sound clashes to go ruin some guy's other sound clash. Uh, And there was plenty of songs written about that. But anyhow, Trojan Records kind of grew out of that scene. And uh, they really paved the way for... for, uh, for Island Records. And then there's also, um, you know, uh, Lee, Lee Scratch Perry was a really uh, well-known uh, eccentric local producer. Uh, so eccentric, he, I think he went to war with every record label that was involved in Jamaica. Uh, really interesting guy. But yeah, uh, Island I don't think was a, I, I could be completely wrong, but I don't think it was really uh, a force until the early 70s, kind of when Trojan fizzled out. 
Yeah, I think Island came to prominence mainly because of the Whalers, right? Correct. I'm pretty sure, and that was late 60s. So we're not talking about pre, pre-Island pre Whalers, which is more, what is it, Studio One? And uh, maybe recorded with Trojan and Scratch Perry did some production for the Whalers as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. And anybody following this history, you could follow it. Mitch already made, or you are, Casey, you made the comparison. Mitch made a comparison in the names like Prince and Lord and mm-hmm. so on. All carries into hip-hop. The yes. sound clashes were storefront, but they were also done at, at um, uh, sound system parties mm-hmm. uh, where they would just put sound systems across from each other and compete, which then happened in the South Bronx right. in the 70s. And, it's, right. and it was Jamaican uh, uh, immigrants that did that, and then people started talking over those sounds, and yes. that's where rap comes from. Absolutely. So all this kind of comes together and mirrors it in a way uh, between... Uh, uh, ska reggae Jamaican music and and mm-hmm. hip hop and uh, uh, maybe it's why I got into Jamaican music I was already into hip hop and when I started seeing these threads how they tied yeah. together I got more and more fascinated with the history as well and uh, especially Scratch Perry man that guy changed of course I listened to Bob Marley mm-hmm. uh, like everybody else but once I was introduced to the Upsetters it was over I, I was yeah. I honestly don't listen to Bob Marley ever anymore but Scratch Perry, man, that guy, that guy did a lot for me. Yeah, tell. he's still still with us. He's still recording music, um, and it's all yeah, it's all great stuff. And I think I got into reggae uh, kind of because my mom was a huge reggae fan. There's a lot of Bob Marley uh, playing in the house. But then when I discovered uh, when I was probably 10, 11, 12, and I got into punk rock, and I got really into the Clash, and the Clash, Lee Perry produced one of. Uh, their singles, Complete Control, they covered uh, uh, Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves, which was a, a Lee Perry production. And I just started seeing all these all these different roots and then The Clash and then The Specials, who were a second wave ska band from and how they were covering all these uh, ska songs that were born out of Jamaica. Prince Buster and The Scottalites. And this all kind of goes back to Ernest Wranglin, who played guitar on a lot of these original tracks. And multiple references to James Bond through a lot of this ska stuff. Right, I, I mean, specials. Yeah, James Bond was a, uh, you know, he was kind of a, he was a, a folk hero. He was kind of one of their own. He was uh, a, a Jamaican-born character in a lot of ways. And uh, Root Boys were really into uh, not just kind of the swagger, but the style. You know, they they like looking sharp and, you know, you can't pick a better icon than Sean Connery era James Bond. And uh, the kind of the two cinematic folk heroes in the in the 60s, early 70s in uh, ska, rock steady reggae music, uh, James Bond and then Clint Eastwood's uh, Man With No Name is also uh, a big hero to uh, the, the, the rude boy uh, subculture. Yeah, I think there's a lot yeah, of big uh, audio dynamite does a lot of references to Leone and right. So you know, yeah. Yeah. so does, I think Scratch Perry too. A lot of dub stuff feels like Morricone. Yeah, and from time to time with some of the sound, the way they mix the sound and the like uh, resonating mm-hmm. tones that just kind of play through, and you get that eerie sort of uh, good, the bad, and the ugly feel. I think that they, right, I you think can see Mor- inf- that influence there. Morricone's sense of reverb, you know, reverb is uh, what. Uh, you know, ska and, and, and dub in particular, you know, it's all about that, that dripping reverb sound. For sure. 
and I will say uh, about this. Oh, yeah, go ahead, John. I was just going to say one top five all time Jamaican born songs is 007 Shantytown. My one of my oh, favorite yeah. singers, Desmond Decker, right of all time. Yeah, so that, I, I've always called that the quintessential Rude Boy song. Yep. Uh, also, another cinematic reference, uh, Ocean's Eleven. Uh, that you know, 007, Ocean's Eleven. Yep. You know, Rude Boy is getting out of jail. Yeah, it's a yeah. great tune. Also on the Harder They Come soundtrack. Right. I, w- I would say, from my personal, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've never been into Jamaican music, um, where do I start? Mm-hmm. I always... I always you know, point them towards any upsetters records. Um, anything that says Trojan, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> like if it's Trojan, go for it. And then the, the Harder They Come soundtrack. That's probably the number one. To me, hand somebody the Harder They Come soundtrack, and that's probably a good primer for, for anyone who hasn't gotten into Jamaican music outside Absolutely. of Bob Marley, of course. And every song on that, every, you know, Jimmy Cliff, uh, Desmond Decker, uh, Toots and the Maytals. I mean, it is, there's not a bad song on that soundtrack. It's all great stuff. Agreed. You know, this Bond soundtrack album is unusual, not only because of the underscoring by Monty Norman, but mm-hmm. the fact that there's a lot of there's a lot of tracks, there's a lot of songs, yeah. needle drop type songs on here. And so it does have a flavor that's very different from all of the other James Bond soundtracks. And it's particularly 1962 mm-hmm. Jamaica. Well, so we should also the reason to look at it. We should also probably talk about this is the one uh, Monty Norman uh, score and you know John Barry is who you think of when you think of James Bond films. I mean, there's been other uh, composers, but John Barry is the guy. Uh, and there's a whole backstory between John Barry and Monty Norman in this soundtrack. Um, when it all comes back to the, the 007, the the theme song, uh, Monty Norman uh, says he's the composer. John Barry says he's the composer. Uh, there's been uh, a couple different court suits or lawsuits that have been settled in court. I think both in Monty Norman's favor. Uh, John Barry and his, his orchestra are the ones who rearranged the, uh, the, the uh, 007 theme song. But and I think, uh, I don't know, there's a really odd crediting system. Uh, Barry, I don't think Barry felt like he got, I don't think he was credited. I don't know, it's all kind of confusing. But uh, and I also remember reading somewhere that I think even Henry Mancini felt like he was ripped off, that uh, that that the 007 theme song had a similarity to a Mancini track. But Well, that was always the joke about Goldfinger, that Goldfinger um, was, was a, a ripoff of, um, not that Goldfinger and Born Free is John Barry too, right? Born Free is John Barry, right? And that they were ripoffs of Moon River. Oh, and that was yeah, that's pretty, that was the thing that that's Mancini good. was always yeah. Doing. <laughs> they, had ripped, they had ripped off Moon River. That's pretty. Born Free and Moon River, I could definitely. That's that's good. That's really good. And then yeah, gold, it makes sense. Goldfinger with three syllables and Moon River with three syllables right. too. Yeah, I've never thought about that. That's weird. <laughs> but it's right there, isn't it? <laughs> it's right oh there. My God. Yeah. Well, I guess we should probably talk a little bit about the action that takes place in this scene besides Chris Blackwell's dancing, right? right. <laughs> um, so we got lighter Quarrel and Bond chatting. We're going to get some exposition, some questions asked that we need asks. Um, again, lighter, lighter not in this scene, of course, in the book. So this is, again, uh, a lot different. And it's a lot different in other ways, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. We get um, our photographer from the airport taking another picture of Bond, which he is not keen on. 
So he sends Quirrell on the mission, pretty demanding, pretty quick. He's pretty quick to start telling Quirrell what to do here, I have to yeah. say. Yeah. I guess yeah. you kick. He's you, taking he's taken the CIA asset and just taking him away. Yep. Because he said he'd cover the check that night, I guess. I don't know how he got Quirrell's attention. But yes, so Quirrell, well, Quirrell's been working with Strangways, too. So Quirrell's been kind of working for both the CIA and the British Secret Service, which is interesting. I don't know how that how that squares in the world of spycraft, because that sounds like a slightly compromised asset. But at any rate, he yeah. seems to be the go-to guy. He's certainly going to be more helpful than our police chief. Um, so, yeah, he goes after after Miss Chung and brings her back. Uh, and and that part of it proceeds pretty similar to the book. He's going to break her arm and she smashes his face with a flashbulb, which, well, which also happens. It's a little different. So she, it, right, the interrogation's pretty much the same. They change the tiny bit with the flashbulb. In the book, she just gets him with the flashbulb. Here she breaks it first and then gets some, which I think is, makes more sense. Um, but when it comes to the aftermath of the interrogation... Uh, it's a lot different in the book for two reasons. First of all, the, the difference between Bonds, and book Bond and movie Bond. Um, when Quirrell asks if he should break her arm, which is really harsh, uh, <laughs> in the book, Bond is appalled by this. He's like, oh, good God, no, is what he says. That's ridiculous, basically. Here he says, yeah, maybe later. <laughs> maybe later. <laughs> maybe later. Yeah, he reserves that indignation only for civil servants in briefing meetings previously right. when he says, Lord, no. But yeah, that sort of contempt that we saw earlier mm-hmm. for not wanting to uh, have, only wanting to meet other civil servants socially, um, that contempt is, uh, is, is not present. And right. Yeah, Connery does seem to think they might break her arm later. And then the other change is, they, uh, in the book, Quirrell, the, Fleming doubles down on Quirrell's cruelty, uh, where he, he offers to break the arm, Bond says no, but then Quirrell takes it upon himself to take a pound of flesh from her by, I'm, okay, so Mitch, help me with the description. He basically pinches really hard between the thumb and fourth finger where those nerves, that's a really painful pay, place to be. That's I've actually right. broken a bone hand. there once. It yeah, sucks. Yeah, takes her hand and presses and presses right. in what he calls the Venus Mound, which uh, of course has another. <laughs> right. Once again, Fleming just can't help himself. Um, but yeah, he he sort of tortures her that way. In fact, says it's going to leave a, a wicked bruise um, to try to get her to talk, and she ain't talking. So the change here is twofold, I think. Like if I'm making this movie, first of all, I'm not sure if I have him offer to break her arm either. But they went with that. But doubling down on Quirrell's cruelty is going to maybe lose your audience. You're gonna, you want him to be kind of a, I hate to say it, but kind of a cuddly sidekick here uh, in this movie. You want us to go with him. You want us to like him. And you want us to empathize with him and then feel sorry for him when the time comes. Uh, I think you might lose them if he tortures a woman yeah. just out of revenge. We can forgive it for interrogation purposes, I guess. But, uh, but. Man, yeah, t- just taking revenge also would just be an awkward there's an, beat. There's really nasty sexual subtext underneath all of it as well. Yeah, yeah. So the Fleming misogyny is coming out, uh, you know, really 100% here. Uh, so, yes, once again, the filmmakers have pulled back and made the whole affair a little bit more palatable. It's still pretty rough. Right. But, uh, but yeah, and so she leaves um, calling them 
rats in the movie and I believe she spits in Bond's face and calls him a bastard in the, the book and that's the end of the scene but it's not the case here mm -hmm. that's only midway through the scene because we've got more to come I guess I have trouble tracking what Bond knows and doesn't know in this movie sometimes to be honest with you I, I feel like for right now and I guess knowing what we know how how Bond movies work later He's, we usually know who the bad guy is right off the bat. and so Oh, speak. yeah, this is way more of a mystery. This is like probably the biggest mystery Bond film that I can think of. In the book, Honey Ryder shows up basically a third of the way in. And in the film, she doesn't show up until the middle of the movie. So there is all sorts of legwork and detective work and business mm -hmm. still to come uh, in the film that really, in, in, the, in the book, they have this meeting... Uh, there's an attempt on Bond's life the next night, and then they are headed to Crab Key. So there's a lot more running around in this film before we actually... It works fine. It's just Key. interesting. You know, another interesting thing that we didn't talk about in the last episode was that in that scene when Bond goes back to the scene of the murders and he finds the photograph of Quarrel, if you watch closely, there's a jump cut that suggests to me maybe there was more information being conveyed in that scene and then they decided to snip it out and whether that was something bond says or something it said off camera we don't know but if it's it's actually bond holding the picture and you can see a little cut mm. it's almost invisible um that suggests that you know they're figuring out exactly how the information is going to be laid out over the course of the movie as they go along but it does end with this reference to Crab Key and the fact that Quarrel had taken Strangways out there and that it's a dangerous place. And that's sort of the information that we end these minutes on. So it's a good stake-raising scene. We've got our second person willing to take on personal harm for the sake of whoever the villain is. And then we add this mysterious place to the mix. Now we know we're going to have to go to this place. We wouldn't be talking about this place if we weren't going there. And we know it's dangerous. So it's a good scene in the sense that we're moving in with the plot. We're adding a little bit more tension, a little bit raising the stakes a little bit. So it works well. I'll add one other thing about this actress. She also was revoiced. Very clearly. <laughs> she didn't, she didn't yeah. know that was going to happen, but they revoiced her. She was also refaced, unfortunately. Uh, not Asian at all, that's but right. made to be. She was former Miss Jamaica. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's... Like, questionable questionable situation there. I do think that um, one other change I was going to point out was they de the, it, it's good. I think it's good, and I think it was probably necessary from a production standpoint to tone down Quarrel's patois a little bit. Because, man, the way, he, the way he talks in the book, I don't know if people would understand it in the movie, you know? I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah it's yet another of the Ian Fleming... Yeah. patronizing, racist attitudes. And so he writes all of Quarrel's dialogue in a, in a, in a patois, and it's tough. It's tough going. Because <laughs> he, here he tells Annabelle Chung, he says, the captain wants to, you to have a drink with us. In the book he says, captain want you have drink with we. It's just like, oh, oh my, my God. God. Oh, my God. But of course, <laughs> even if they tried to stay true to that in the book, the audience would be like, what did he say? I mean, there would be so many people confused by it. So I'm not necessarily going to give the movie uh, production credit for doing it out of sensitivity. But yeah, right. Um, but yeah. at least it got done. Um, it, it's much more palatable. And, and 
Yeah, just yeah. Poor Robert Whitfield, who reads the audiobook, listening to him try to make his way through all of this yeah. vernacular <laughs> patois stuff is boy, he earned his money because it's it can't be fun. There's no on on all sorts of levels, it can't be fun. Right. Well, Casey, any final thoughts uh, as we as we finish out these minutes? Uh, well, like I had said earlier, uh, this scene ends with. Uh, an instrumental, at least a, an intro to uh, Underneath the Mango Tree, which will come back in the infamous uh, Honey Rider coming out of the uh, ocean scene where she's actually singing it. And uh, the vocals on that particular track are actually Monty Norman's uh, wife, Diana Copeland, is singing uh, Underneath the Mango Tree. And um, going back to Underneath the Mango Tree, when we first hear it at the bar, uh, there are male vocals um, and I think that is actually uh, Monty Norman himself Monty Norman was a singer before he was a uh, composer even though I don't think he's credited as the singer on the soundtrack but I'm almost sure that's that's his voice and he I suppose wisely wrote that composition because there's more money to be made oh, yeah. with the original composition that's, than to use traditional songs right. so yeah there's, there is that right yeah, and then uh, I, I will, uh, you had mentioned it earlier, I uh, do have a Spotify playlist that uh, is select songs from um, Dr. No, uh, songs from the book, and uh, a few uh, ska, rock city songs that are just inspired by, by Bond. So we will put that on the Facebook page and people can go to Spotify and listen to all this music we've been talking about. Cool. So we really appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Oh, my yeah, pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks, Casey. Well, hopefully, maybe we can get you back on From Russia with Love if you can find something in there that uh, interests you. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today, I think. Um, you can come over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Alien Minute. Check out what we're doing over there. Follow us on Facebook, like we mentioned before, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and feelings on what we're talking about. And we'll see you next week uh, for another seven minutes on 007 by 7 Bye, everybody.